Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. And from the home of the Houston, the world champion Houston Astros, might I add, Robert, along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani, 45 years in journalism between the two of us, over 35 years covering Houston sports. And Sean, owner Jim Crane and GM Jim Crane signed three-time All-Star and former MVP first baseman Jose Abreu to a three-year $58.5 million deal. He'll be 36 next year. Are you thumbs up or thumbs down on the deal? I'm thumbs up on the deal. If there's a slight decline in his numbers, you know, and you really kind of have to look in the to the in-depth numbers in terms of like um, what he was doing against fastballs, high fastballs, not pulling as many baseballs um, on uh, higher velocity pitches, that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, maybe there's a decline, but I'd also like to hear from the guy himself too, who maybe made an adjustment. And that just happened to be kind of the uh, result of said adjustment because his overall power numbers are still pretty darn good. He had 40 doubles. He's only done that twice uh, in his career. The 15 homers, um, if you translate that to the type of season he had in Chicago to what it could have been if he would have been an Astro, they go to 22 home runs. Um, and you just never know, like the look of the ballpark, the feel of the ballpark, you know, the team. We know the White Sox were an absolute disaster for much of the season under Tony La Russa before he'd stepped out and didn't get much better um, when he did. So um, I think, you know, in relation to all of those things that I just said, my short answer is yes, absolutely. I, I don't worry so much about age these days because sports science is so great, um, because nutrition is so great, and guys are taking better care of their bodies uh, more nowadays than ever before. Um, and I, I do like the fact that while the Houston Astros might lose Justin Verlander, one of the most appealing reasons, I think, for Justin Verlander um, – to, to stick around as long as he did here in Houston is because of the sports science department, because of the training staff, because of the doctors that he'd had at his disposal. So all of those things, like when you're talking about an aging player, um, you know, in their mid to late 30s, as Jose Abreu will be during his time here with the Houston Astros, like you have to feel really good about all of those things. Let's go through some of his career stats because you get excited when you see 860 career OPS with runners in scoring position, 943. Wow. First righties, 841. First lefties, 925. This is all OPS. So this is good stuff. Postseason OPS. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good, too. 871. At Minute Maid Park, his career is a 590 OPS, but factor in. Oh, yeah, he was facing the Astros pitching. So you kind of have to throw a little bit of that out the window. As far as the three-year contract goes, Sean, yes, it could fall off a cliff at any time. I mean, you've got a guy that's in his late 30s. Three years, maybe one year too long. But keep in mind, the contracts of Altuve and Bregman end in two years. So, Sean, I assume Jim Crane might see the next two years as the last of the dynasty window because you can't assume that Altuve and Bregman are going to resign with the Astros at that point in their careers. Hey, you can't assume that they will, and you can't really assume that you would necessarily want them to either um, because two years, there's a lot of baseball to be played between now and then. And, you know, that to a degree hurts me to even say, and it probably smarts even 
uh, more to actually hear it. Like, what do you mean you wouldn't want Altuve? What do you mean you wouldn't want Bregman? Well, I mean, you know, you think about the players that you've lost. I mean, just take yourself emotionally away from the situation. You've lost George Springer. You've lost uh, Carlos Correa. You've lost Dallas Keuchel. You've lost Garrett Cole, who didn't have that much of an emotional attachment with the fans. Um, really wasn't even a two-way street, to be quite honest with you, as the representative of himself would tell you probably. But but the, the thing is, we, what you know about the Astros, what we have seen with Jim Crane is guys in the prime of their career towards the middle to back end of their career, he doesn't want to give more than two or three-year contracts. That's why Springer left. That's why Correa left. That's why, you know, Garrett Cole left. He, he's not going to do that. I mean, this was a three-year contract. That's about as far as he's going to go, I think, when you're in your 30s. You know, it's a, it's a really good point. Um, and, and you maybe you think about how quickly relationships, um, as strong as they are at their apex, sometimes can sour. And I can't really think of a great example under this regime or even the previous one, to be quite honest with you as an example. But, um, you know, Altuve and Bregman and even Jordan, to be honest with you, Robert, all three of those guys, you know, considering what they've done for their careers and the years since they'd signed those deals, probably could have gotten a hell of a lot more on an open market. But, you know, they love the city of Houston. They love the Astros. They love the organization. They saw the promise. They saw the uh, future potential of winning uh, multiple championships. And it's come to fruition. And there might even be more in sight. And so maybe towards the end of those deals, when they are looking at hitting the open market again in their early to mid, even to late 30s at those respective times with those three individuals that I just talked about, maybe they do take it all into account and say, you know what, signed a really team-friendly deal then, but boy, the market is sure looking sweet now. Maybe I can get a two or three or four-year deal, but a lot more AAV somewhere else than I could in Houston. Somebody's always going to be willing to pay a little bit more than the place from which you'd come from. Um, you know, that's just kind of generally how it's gone. I would never want to see Altuve play in another uniform. Um, I think it's a little bit different in saying that than for a guy like Justin Verlander. I mean, this is a career Houston Astro. Um, and I, I just do, I'm not going to say it's number one, Robert, but, and I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this. I just think it's, there is a level of importance there for you to take care of the guys that helped you accomplish what you did as an organization. I just remember what happened at the end of Craig Biggio's career. And I know what Altuve did for the organization, but Jim Crane's about winning. And I respect that because guess what? He's won over and over and over again. And so, you know, could, could Altuve stick around for a smaller contract and maybe he could get somewhere else. There's a good chance of that because that seems like that's Altuve's DNA. But I just can't, I can't get mad if you let Altuve walk. If somebody wants to give Altuve a five or six year deal when he's age, I don't know. I think he's 34 or something like that at the end of this contract. And Altuve's a guy, he's, he's small, small guys don't age particularly well. He's not going to be able to sit back and rely on the fact that he's six foot four and can right. maybe hit the right. ball out of the ballpark or something like we, that. We've also been saying those same things for a couple of three years now about Jose Altuve. And year in and year out, he continues to just do what he does. And I know 
He's 32, yeah. though, now. It's not like he's 36 right. or whatever, you know? Absolutely right. But I, I don't think a lot of people really presumed that he would be doing what he's doing into his 30s. And he's really shown no signs of slowing down. Yes, he struggled in different portions. And some of them were pretty big struggles throughout the course of the last couple of seasons. But damn, the guy hit, uh, what, 340 over the course of the last 25, 26 games. Maybe it was even more than that. I can't remember all the numbers now, but um, and then obviously the postseason struggles. But I mean, hell, who didn't struggle in the postseason? I mean, he was just kind of like the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to talk all this about Altuve leaving because it's no, like right. this is two years away. I'm just bringing that up to point out the Abreu thing. And look, Altuve's 32. He should still be in his prime. But if you're talking about signing Altuve at the age of 34 to a five or six year contract and he's 40 years old, and he's a guy that relies on his speed. I'm just saying, Alex Bregman is also a small guy that relies on his quickness and all of those things. I'm not telling you these guys are going to be terrible when they're 36. I'm just saying, let's be realistic. We, you, we've, you, you said it off the top. We've seen Garrett Coley. We've seen George Springer go. We've seen all of these guys. You know, they're gone. So I, I'm just saying that. So looking at Jose Abreu and with this way, I mean, like the idea that the Astros are just going to go to the ALCS and World Series every single year forever and ever and ever and ever. Come on. It's not it's not real. This is going to end at some point. And Altuve and Bregman are such a big part of that. It's not just what they do on the field. It's what they do in leading their guys. And, and, yes. and at some point, you know, leadership, you, you can't just keep replacing great players and great leaders over and over and over again like the Astros have done. I think, you know, it, it's really hard when you know, you're, you're, you're stripped of so much of your draft choices and so many, so many of the guys at the lower tiers of the organization that are coming up. I mean, to keep doing this over and over again, it's, it's tricky. It is. It's very tricky. And it doesn't, the, the way to do it, you know, especially when your draft capital isn't as, as heavy as, as lucrative as you would like, is to be able to go out and sign guys at some friendlier deals when they're, um, you know, 27, 28 years old, and you can get them on that five to seven year contract, much like you did a Bregman or an Altuve. They just happen to be in house and you're done. Um, it doesn't happen all the time. The Astros have some opportunities um, to, to do that at uh, various positions. Um, now, whether they're going to do that, coupled with the fact that they've already paid a high price and probably a higher price than they really needed to for a guy like Jose Abreu, um, maybe they decide to do that with Wilson Contreras, a 30-year-old catcher. I don't know. And how much of a catcher is he really going to be? And is he going to be even paid like a catcher if the Astros sign him? Or is he going to be a DH left fielder, first baseball, two guy? I, who knows? I, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about tonight. I'm sure you've got it planned in the show, but I'm kind of fascinated with what the Astros have left to do, Robert, um, because there's quite a bit. And it seems like they're going to continue to do this and get the bulk of it done without an actual general manager in-house. How comfortable are you with that? I mean, that's where they are right now, but it's not like they've got a ton to do. they got one of the great starting pitching staffs, even if Verlander goes. They're still fantastic. Their bullpen is set. We know that. They The only guy that was of any import, free agent-wise, in the entire pitching staff, they've already signed in Montero. If you look at the starting lineup, Abreu's batting six because you're starting off with Altuve and Pena and, you know, Bregman and Jordan and Tucker. And, you know, I mean, they've got one of the best lineups now without catcher. And they did it last year. They won the championship with Maldonado as their catcher. So if Maldonado is going to hit 150 again 
and you're going to go to the you know World Series, you're going to be confident in Maldonado because guess what? He's Martin Maldonado, and he just took you to a World Series, and he's you know he's the leader out there. And even if you brought out somebody else in, I mean, Dusty's the manager, and he loves Maldonado. So if you brought in Yogi Berra in his prime. You know, the guy that's going to the Hall of Fame, Dusty might say, well, I like Moldy better. You know, so I think Wilson Contreras is an option because he can play other positions and he can DH and he can do other things. And so I think that's the benefit of somebody like him. But pretty much that's the big thing. They're trying to get Yuli back uh, to be a, you know, a utility guy. Aledmus Diaz is a free agent. I assume he's gone. So, you know, Yuli, I think, is is, is part of it. But Yuli and the catcher, that's really it as far as I'm concerned. Well, um, you know, you've got to look at uh, left field, center field, DH, who's going to be the platoon guy there. Um, if it is going to be Yuli, I, I don't know if it comes down to this either or between Yuli or Michael Brantley. Um, you know, I've thought about this quite a bit over the last few days. And, boy, I tell you, I, I know the injury issues have, have kind of been there um, with Michael Brantley. But the age and the real possibility of of a severe decline, even just a year removed from a batting title um, and silver slugger with Yuli Gurriel, that is a possibility as well, along with age, not necessarily the injury history, because that's a guy that went out there day in and day out, banged up or not, and he was going to play and battle through. But I'd like to have Michael Brantley back. You know, I think he adds some really good flexibility there in left field, not having to play Jordan out there on the regular. He gives you the DH option um, and multiple options on what you want to do at first base or DH, especially if you factor in Wilson Contreras into it, which, you know, he's not here yet, but he certainly could be. I just don't want Brantley back because I just feel like he's too much of an injury risk. He just doesn't play a lot. He's playing less and less. He's getting more and more injured. You've got a left fielder DH right now that is an injury risk himself and Jordan and somebody that you protect like a glass vase at this moment. So I don't want somebody else that's a left fielder DH that's also a a constant injury concern and somebody that's going to be, they they need to get somebody that can play center field, that can be flexible, that can move Chaz over to left to get, you know, if they have to, but worst case scenario, you know, Chaz is the center fielder next year. Jordan is back. You know, maybe they bring up somebody like, you know, I I don't know if Jake Myers is back in the, as an option, but you know, they've got Pedro Leon. That's potentially somebody that can do something out in the outfield. He's played center field and left field. So it's not terrible if Pedro Leon or Chaz McCormick is your center fielder next year, or Chaz is playing left and, and, and with Pedro Leon, it's, it's not a tragic thing at all. You still got a pretty darn good lineup. You still got, Pretty good uh, defense, and you know you got some MVPs all around your infield. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and you know, look, maybe if Yuli is 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 one of those guys that the Astros believe could be that utility guy, um, you know, replacing an Aledmus Diaz, so to speak, because he can play the left side of the infield. He could play first base. He could DH. I think that's a good option. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing to me is is I'm sure you, like everybody else, read the Keith Law piece a couple of days ago talking about the Jose Abreu and, um, you know, his decline and all of that. And it was less about the decline that um, he'd really he really failed to prove in his piece there. And it just seemed more like he was interested in taking some pot shots at Jim Crane. But I, I'm interested in knowing, like, 
What indicators were there that Yuli Gurriel was going to hit this severe of a decline when he was winning a batting title in 2021? You know, what what evidence is there, real evidence, that Jose Abreu is about to hit a decline? You know, they're not all fall off the cliff kind of things, but I mean, hell, even a steady decline over the course of the next three years is something that you'll take if you're the Houston Astros from a pro, offensive productivity uh, level. Now, he's just, not- just, just to be clear, he's 36 next year. He's not 39 right. in what Yuli was this year. So let's make that clear. This is not like, oh, my God, next year he's going to be terrible. 36, you can still be a pretty good player. But there was some evidence in the numbers last year that he was going the other way more. He wasn't pulling it as much. There was some things that was were going on that maybe he he's slipping a little bit, but him slipping a little bit is still pretty darn good as a first baseman. Yeah, just look at the numbers. I mean, one of the most attractive numbers that I'd liked in, in, in some of your more fundamental statistics was the on-base percentage. And from a career standpoint, I mean, it's just been terrific. It's been well above 340 uh, each and every year uh, for a career. But I found these numbers that I think you might find interesting relative to Jose Abreu. Um, when you talk about plate discipline, which is probably the first thing that we heard about from him um, in terms of an offensive player. But then, two, what about the clutch? 13 of his 22 hits on first pitches were extra base hits in 2022, best in baseball. 67 RBIs in innings six through nine in 2022. That's top five in all of baseball. Almost a five. 60 batting average in 362 at-bats, Robert, with runners in scoring position in 2022. That's seventh best in all of Major League Baseball. And 107 RBIs with two outs since the start of the 2020 season. That's best in all of baseball. That's what got me really excited about Jose Abreu. And look, it, it, it is about what you're paying him from 2023 to 2025, but it's also about the track record and why you feel the guy is worth, um, you know, paying nearly $20 million a year for on an already World Series championship team. I'm really excited about the guy. And even if there is a slight little dip in his overall numbers, um, you can do a heck of a lot worse. It's really going to hurt. It's really going to smart a little bit, Robert, if, in fact, you do get that massive decline for whatever reason. Maybe the injury bug just decides to bite him in the butt then yeah, you're paying a guy almost $20 million a year for the next three years, and how much baseball is he playing for, and when he is, how effective is he? Well, let's worry about that when the time comes, or if the time comes. Yeah, this is all rich people's problems, and unfortunately, uh, that's what you get with the Astros. Not unfortunately what you get with the Astros, but unfortunately we got to talk about the teams with poor people's problems, like the Texans, <laughs> and they're a constant soap opera. So before I do that, though, a quick heads up to – Check out our live Texans-Browns postgame show on Sunday. It's Deshaun's return, so who knows what could happen. You might want to check us out. If you miss it, look for our live shows anytime under the live tab on our YouTube page or check out your favorite podcast app. And yesterday was my weekly Rocket show with Frank from HTX Chop Shop. Me and Sean are going to get into Rockets when the Texans season ends a little bit. I'm sure he's looking forward to that. On Thursday morning, I'm posting our weekly NFL fantasy show with Andy Rio. And Friday morning, I'll be talking about the number one ranked Houston Cougars with University of Houston insiders Sam Raz and Dunstan Radzik. What's up, Cougs house? Oh, my goodness. They look good. Uh, Sean, what did you make of Levy Smith? Get a little testy with Chronicle beat writer Brooks Cabina. 
during the Dolphins post game because you and I were talking at that time, so we didn't get a chance to hear it until afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it's the second week in a row that he's really failed at the podium. If you remember, um, it was another similar tense moment after the Commanders game. Um, you know, I, it's less than 30 minutes after a game. Uh, you're obviously, regardless of the situation, if you're a head coach and your team gets their brakes blown off of them like the Texans did, you've got to try to pin, you know spin a positive on it. And you know that you know, from a reporter's standpoint of view, they want to talk about the bad. They want to know why. They want to know why such a poor offensive output. They want to know the answers to some real tough questions. And, you know, yes, um, we've all at one point or another, you know, inadvertently kind of gotten under Lovey Smith's skin, um, even in the weekly press conferences, never mind a post-game press conference, because I'm not even there for those. I'm usually in the locker room or, like you said, talking to you. But um, I – I, I didn't make too much of it. It's just you have to understand the position that he's in. I mean, there are some coaches that will come out like Jim Moore did years ago. You know, we sucked. We were terrible. That was a piss poor effort. And da, 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 da. It's one thing to do that when your expectations are at a certain point. Lovey Smith knows damn well the situation of this organization, but he's charged with developing young talent teaching them the ropes of the NFL and doing all of those things. And at the end of the day, he's there for, you know, support and to be more, I heard somebody say this this week, or maybe I read it somewhere to be more presidential, like at the podium. Okay. Well, he's starting to crack there too. Okay. Um, because David Coley, God bless. What would he have been like in this situation this season? I mean, as dumb as he sounded at the podium all last season, how dumb do you think he'd sound this Three and out, we're good. My God. And I think that's why I think the the Texans media, it's not like they're hard on him, but they're a little harder on him because, look, David Culley had a, had four wins last year. Uh, doesn't look like Lovey is going to have four wins. This team looks worse, which is kind of amazing because we thought they would have a little bit more talent this year, and it's the second year of Davis Mills. Now, I'm, I'm not going to throw the whole Davis Mills thing on on Lovey's record because I, I don't think that he has much to do with Davis Mills progressing. But I also thought it was interesting, by the way, Sean, that Cal McNair standing in the back of the press conference. I attended a ton of Bill O'Brien press conferences. Don't recall Bob McNair at any of them unless he was involved. And let's just say I, I find Cal's presence a little noteworthy. Yeah, um, I asked somebody about that that was actually there in the press conference. And what they told me was that it, it really wasn't that big of a deal you know cal went on that trip brought his nine-year-old son and it was just kind of an opportunity for cal to take his son into a press conference and kind of <laughs> <laughs> uh, i just so find that I, I just find that an odd an odd thing like let's take my son into a press conference after we've lost you know by a gajillion points and and watch my my coach getting drilled by the media it's just that's weird yeah, it's it's weird, but you know, you don't know that those things are going to happen and you know You how, don't you don't really? Well, <laughs> you, you really don't you really don't know. And maybe, you know, there's where the real the real issue lies, Robert, is because once again, Lovey Smith, a large part of the reason why I believe um that they felt they decided to make him a head coach and he accepted, of course, you know, who doesn't want to be a head coach? I actually asked him that question early in the season, maybe his first press conference of the year is if, 
did he ever envision himself being a head coach in the NFL again after having not done it for five, six seasons uh, since Tampa Bay? And he'd said, you're never content in this business. You always want to be the top guy. You always want that opportunity. And so I kind of found that fascinating for a guy, you know, an, uh, a football lifer and has spent much of his time at the highest level to take a job with with this organization that is in the position that it is, you're a smart guy. You're not where you are if you're not. Probably didn't think he was going to get another job, and there's a little money that's involved in that too. Hey, look, Lovey Smith has no problem taking Cal McNair's money, and most people wouldn't, okay? David Culley, he, I don't know if he knew if he saw the writing on the wall, but he's obviously not having any problem taking $7 million over the course of the next three years of Cal McNair's money. No problem with that, but – you know, Lovey is a teacher. You know, Lovey is a mentor. Lovey is that 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 grandfatherly figure. You know, and we'd be talking a lot more about this side of Lovey if, in fact, things didn't look so uh, porous and poor and really despicable this year. We'd be talking a lot about that from from Lovey Smith's personality and character traits. But we're not. You know, it's bad football, and so we're gonna you know focus on the podium more times than not but because he has handled the podium and failed really over the course of the last two weeks the way that he has i think you know depending on who cal mcnair is listening to these days depending on if he's got that trusted advisor or advisors by his side somebody that you know his father did for years and years then i think it is important and interesting to note that hey the state of the franchise that we're in it's not going to be much much better than, than it is now next year, though you're certainly hoping to see more progress and it show up in the win column because you're not going to be gearing for that number one overall pick next season. You just hope that your coach is sending the right message um, through a microphone and a camera lens just as he is in the locker room because all of the players listen and read what is written. Um, I say all the players. A lot of them do. A lot of them talk about it, and a lot of them have admitted as much over the course of the last couple of weeks. So that is all important stuff to Cal McNair, and he is more concerned with optics, believe it or not, than you and I think. Speaking of optics, Tony Busby will be at Sunday's game with 10 of Deshaun's accusers. And I'm a little surprised, Sean, they'd want to be in the line of fire. The accusers would want to be, uh, so to speak, and also surprised that as part of the settlement, it wasn't written that they wouldn't attend any of Deshaun's games or practices. Kind of surprised Rusty Harden couldn't see this one coming. I mean... You know, maybe there was some language that uh, Rusty Harden, you know, fought to try and, and get in some of this litigation and these agreements on these settlements that there had to be this, uh, you know, separation, at least visual, which I think there probably will be. I think that'll be fairly easy for Deshaun Watson to avoid these. You know, is he going to be driving it on a bus and walking up the tunnel? Is there going to be protesters? Are there going to be chants? Is he going to hear and see this stuff? Maybe, maybe not. He's certainly going to know that it's there. But um, I, I think I, for one, was not shocked, was not surprised at all when I saw that report yesterday about Busby and uh, there being at least I think it's I think it's at least 10 women that are going to be there. Uh, it could be more, could be less. You never know who decides to back out. But I was not surprised at all because. Look, this is Tony Busby's time, and the message that he wants to send to his clients, um, you know, the accusers, is that, hey, you know, yeah, we've been heard, 
Um, but this thing's not over. And that's exactly the sentiment. You know, they want to be seen. They want to continue to be heard because this will not soon be forgotten. And they don't want it to just automatically become about football. I think in their eyes, it makes the road for Deshaun Watson that much easier if, in fact, they just go away, uh, given the court settlement. Uh, this is going to be a fight for a long time. And Deshaun Watson, I think it's going to be interesting to see how he decides to handle life going forward as an NFL quarterback with, um, you know, having gone through what he did uh, unto himself over the course of the last two years. Have you watched much of Team USA? The end of the World Cup at all? Goal? Yeah, I, man, that was that was a fantastic goal. I mean, a goal like that, you know, it, it could that was like in the what, 37, 38th minute of the game the other day. And that felt like it was in the 90th minute at that time. I mean, the excitement level that was in this household was off the charts, <laughs> you know, and this soccer for me is kind of like the Olympics. You know, you don't really care about it unless it's, uh, you know, every four years or, or whatever. Yeah. And that's fine. But it's, hey, it's it's Team USA. That's my team. That's your team. That's everybody's team. It's America's team. Um, that goal is phenomenal. Phenomenal. I couldn't tell, like, if. Pulsic actually kicked the ball in himself or if it was the Iranian player, you know, from the angle that it initially showed on the TV. And when they showed the angle from behind the goal, I was like, oh, my God, that made it even that much more phenomenal because the assist, the header was one of the best one of the best passes that I've ever seen um, at, at that level, at that level of competition. It was tremendous. Yeah, I don't consider myself a soccer junkie, but I agree. It's like the Olympics. And I, I go in with no expectations for Team USA. It may be stating the obvious, but getting out of the group stage with very, you know, a very young, inexperienced team after not qualifying four years ago, that's the victory. It's a big victory right there, regardless of what happens against the Dutch. And I, I don't claim to be smart enough to critique most of the coaching strategy, but I'm hearing analysts say this, and this is something I, I was thinking. I just find it odd they're carrying three goalkeepers and haven't played one of their most talented players, Gio Reyna, considering their style of play, leaves most of these guys looking like they're gassed three-fourths of the way through the match. And that that's their style of play. So that that I found a little odd. Yeah. And I look, I can't speak to that necessarily uh, because I think it certainly is heavily dependent upon the opponent. And I'm not going to begin to try and break down, uh, you know, Iranian soccer or any of their previous opponents or who's even coming up. But I will say this. Um, those dudes are hungry and because they're young, you know, they are some of the most athletic, one of the more athletic groups that I've seen from Team USA soccer. And the way that they played that game yesterday, they controlled the ball and they set the tone immediately by controlling the ball in that first half of play. And to me, look, these are greatly long stretches. I mean, those guys were exhausted even by the 60th minute of that game yesterday. That's what happened against Wales and against England. They're getting exhausted because of their style of play. And it's a hard style of play, and it takes a lot out of you. So, like I said, when do you ever use three goalies in, in World Cup? You're, you're playing, if you're lucky, you're getting out of the group stage, which means three games. And so that means you got the, the fourth game. I just find that odd. But speaking of the goalie, I got to talk about Matt Turner because he's been awesome. He I can't believe this kid didn't even play soccer till he was 16. A total walk-on at Fairfield University. Rode the bench his first two years in college. He wasn't drafted by the MLS. This is your Rocky story right here. Yeah, no, I mean, and you know, you hear about these things, uh, you know, every every so often, and I'm glad that U.S. soccer finally has one of them because of what, it's it's what makes the team kind of so special, so intriguing. 
um, is because of a story like that. And you talk about the young and inexperienced, uh, you know, players that they do have. I will say this, just to make one more point, you know, the, the, their style of play, which is is exhausting for them, certainly, because of how aggressive um, that they are. It takes a lot out of the opponent as well. And I, I think, you know, that's a credit to the coach uh, of, of how much work that he puts his guys in. That's a credit to the training staff. That's a credit to just the preparation. Um, it, it's a style of play, quite frankly, that I feel like the, the Houston Rockets should probably try to actually employ because with their athleticism and their drive, which I don't feel like is always there, but just based simply on uh, their athleticism and their youth, they should be boat racing guys up and down the floor every single night and playing exhausted and at the same time exhausting the opponent. And I think the Rockets are a talented enough team to where if they actually employed uh, a similar stylistic sort of play like that, they'd be a little bit more successful at the end of games than they are. You just hit something that's really important. Having three goalies when you are not going to use three goalies is kind of like not having a fast point guard that's a veteran when you really need a fast point guard that's a veteran if you're going to play fast. And Kevin Porter, one of the, my things with him is you can't play fast because he's not a real fast guy. He's got good quickness in, in, in a half-court situation, but he's not your John Wall that's, you know, I hate to say the word John Wall, that's speeding up and down the court. But that's, that's really something that uh, I feel like the Rockets could use is that type of player. Again, go back and listen to me and Frank. We talk a everything that's going on with the Rockets, because there's a lot going on with them right now. I want to go back to the Texans and, and just ask you one quick thing before we go, because you and I are going to be talking Texans in a few days here. They've got a two-game lead for the first pick in the draft. Cleveland losses help the Texans, other draft picks. So, Sean, is the best thing for the Texans' future a Texans win this week? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is. But, you know, you're you're also presuming that Deshaun Watson is going to pick up right where he left off. And you're also going to presume that even without or even with Deshaun Watson, this team has been largely a roller coaster. And aside from their quarterback play, Jacoby Brissett has put together one of the best seasons of his career. He hasn't played bad football. Um, he's done actually a really good job of keeping them in games. Hell, he just beat Tom Brady a couple of days ago against that Tampa Bay Buck defense. Not only a fourth quarter comeback drive to tie and send it overtime, but he beat him in overtime. And, you know, what a hell of an ordeal to have to sit after a game like that to where it gives you that much more hope. Um, you know, they've got a 9% chance to make the playoffs. A victory over the Texans could bump them up to 10, 11, 12%. Another victory after that, I think they got the Ravens following that. I can't remember. Um, but they could see their playoff chances increase all the way up to 35, 40% over the course of the next three weeks, depending on, too, how things break down elsewhere in that division. So it's very real for them. A Texans win would certainly, uh, it would behoove them to win this week. How possible is it? These two teams are literally at the opposite end of the spectrum from each other in terms of what the Texans offense is has been doing versus what the Cleveland Browns defense has been doing across the board. And I'm not exaggerating. As bad as this Houston Texans team has been, it should be way worse this Sunday against the Cleveland Browns. Is Kyle Allen still the quarterback? Have you heard from uh, Lovey this week? Yeah, he spoke today. Uh, Kyle Allen was at the podium, and obviously, you know, word of the day, as it was last week, execution. All right. It should be uh, 
not interesting. I say I said I was going to say interesting, but no, not interesting. Kyle Allen, quarterback, and the Texans doing their thing. The interesting thing is going to be Deshaun. I guess this, the the Deshaun circus and everything. You and I will be talking about this though on Sunday, and please let it be close so we can have some fun with this game. Oh man, how awesome would it be to see Kyle Allen do exactly what Jacoby Brissett did? You know, opposite Deshaun Watson you know, this Sunday and lead his team down the field to victory. Or if the Texans defense, you know, comes up with some big stops late, you get a Jerry Hughes or a Mario Addison sack or a uh, oboe sack on Watson to end the game. How tremendous would that be? All right. Until you and I talk, I just got three final letters for you. USA, USA, USA. There you go, baby. <laughs> there you go. I'll give you two words. Go Cougs. <laughs> yeah. you're listening to houston sports talk hey you can support the show by subscribing on youtube and commenting on the videos listen to houston sports talk on spotify apple stitcher and google don't forget to tell a friend and share our show on social media spread the word everybody thanks for listening